Welcome to the Israel Bible Podcast. My name is Cindy Parker, and I am an author, speaker, and professor of Holy Land Studies at Israel Bible Center. I am passionate about reading the Bible in the physical, historical, and cultural context of its day. And I love having geeky conversations with people about the Bible. In this podcast, I'd like to invite you to join me as I sit down each week with other faculty members of IBC to discover new aspects of the Bible. These are some of my favorite dialogues because as a modern audience reading an ancient text, we know that the Bible does not need to be rewritten, but it needs to be reread. This week, I am joined once again by Dr. Shazer, who is the professor of Hebrew Bible at Israel Bible Center, and we are here to talk more about his course, Women and Gender in the Bible. Last week, we set the stage by talking about the creation narratives in Genesis and the fundamental ontological equality between male and female. And as Dr. Shazer said... So we should take this very seriously and let that be the rudder of our ship going forward. That way, when you run into sort of patriarchal-sounding texts in the Torah, you need to be reading them within the framework of what we've already heard in the first statement of the Bible. But we still have these New Testament texts that seem to look down on Eve. Yet, in his course on women and gender in the Bible, Dr. Shazer talks about how Eve is considered the first Torah scholar. This is something I think we all need to hear more about, right? So why do I call Eve the first Torah scholar? Because God commands the human, God commands Adam, not to eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that's all God says, don't eat from it. And then the snake in Genesis 3 starts talking to Eve and says, hey, is it really true that God said that, that you can't eat from any tree of the garden? And Eve goes, well, no, dummy. We can eat from any tree that we want, except for the tree in the middle of the garden, which is the the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then Eve adds something. And she says, we can't eat from it, neither can we touch it, lest we die. So the neither can we touch it bit is not, God doesn't say that. And so the question would be, why is Eve adding this? And This is the first instance in the Bible of what later Jewish thinkers would call building a fence around the Torah. We get this from Jesus, actually, in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, thou shall not murder is the commandment that God gave. I'm going to add to that and say, don't even get angry. Because if, if you don't get angry, then you won't murder anyone. Now, Jesus isn't adding to the commandment insofar as making a new commandment, but rather offering offense in front of the commandment. So the command remains, don't murder. If you murder somebody, you've broken the Torah command. Jesus merely offers a way to ensure that you don't even get close to that commandment, and the fence is don't get angry. Well, that's exactly what Eve is doing in the garden. No, we're not supposed to eat it. I'll throw in, don't even touch it. That's literally building a fence, an invisible fence, around the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we see this happening. Men, very, very prominent men like Jeremiah and Nehemiah, we see them building fences around the Torah as well. So, for example, Jeremiah 17, Jeremiah says, okay, I know that you're not supposed to do work on the Sabbath. And so Jeremiah says, don't bring your produce on your shoulder into the gates of Jerusalem on the Sabbath. So the Torah doesn't say thou shall not pick up you know, a sheep on the Sabbath. It (laughs) it doesn't say that. 
But what Jeremiah is doing is trying to build a fence around the Torah to ensure that, that people don't break the Sabbath command. Nehemiah then builds another fence around Jeremiah in Nehemiah 13, where, and it's a literal fence. Uh, Nehemiah says, okay, I know that Jeremiah said, don't bring a burden into the city of Jerusalem on the Sabbath. So I told the people to close the city gates so that no one can get in anyway, even if they tried to do that. That's honestly creating a fence. Fence building around the Torah is something that we see in the rest of the Tanakh. It's something that we see with Jesus. And indeed, it's something that we see later with the rabbis. The rabbis love to do this. So what's the point here? Eve sets the precedent for that. In an ancient context, reading that story, you would have said, well done, Eve. Good idea. Good job. So yeah, the the telos, the end of this conversation between Eve and the snake, yeah, it doesn't end well. But Eve's intention is good, and her approach to, to commandments is absolutely correct. It's best not to, to disparage Eve too much. Again, she's the first Torah scholar, and none other than Jesus of Nazareth follows Eve in that, in that scriptural project. That is not how that text is often explained in church. I mean, as a female who grew up in church, the way I always heard that was Adam didn't teach her properly <laughs> or... You know, there's always some sort of pejorative sure. to her adding that, and it's not seen in any kind of consistent mm. light throughout the Bible in terms of she's doing what other men who come after her end up doing as well. And I, I think it, it reframes so much about what we assume about her in a whole different light that I just really appreciate your take on that. Good. I don't know how common that is. I just, I heard that in your course. I was like, I've never heard that, but it makes total sense. And I just was really grateful to hear you yeah, say you that. Yeah, you know, the Jewish scribes that commentate on Genesis after the time of Jesus, so this is several hundred years after Jesus, they have this discussion about Eve too. And they don't say exactly what I say. Just to put all my cards on the table here, what they say is... And, and I came to this actually before stumbling upon this midrash, this rabbinic thing, but the rabbis, you know, they're never going to win, you know, the gold medal of the year for pro-feminist <laughs> views. I, I don't, um, right. <laughs> I shouldn't say that. I, you know what? I love the rabbis and I shouldn't disparage all of them. What I, what I should front load is rabbinic literature isn't like Christian doctrine of the church fathers. The church fathers are, are interested in creating doctrines. You have to believe X or else, essentially, or else you're a heretic. Later Jews don't do that. They, they have dialogue. They have debate. Rabbi X will say, I think this, and then Rabbi Y will come in and say, I think you're wrong. And then Rabbi Z will come in and say, you're both right or you're both wrong. Let's just go get a drink together. So it's much more dialogical in, in Judaism than it is in later Christianity. So I front load that to just say, there are all sorts of pro-Eve views in the rabbinic literature. And again, the rabbinic literature is a mountain of literature. And so there's going to be different opinions. So some people are really pro-Eve, other rabbis are not so much. And one of the non-pro views is <laughs> the rabbi points to that text that we were just talking about and says, aha, this is a good example that you should never build the fence too high around the Torah because it ends badly. Okay, but the point is there. So it's a negative valuation of Eve's behavior. But for our purposes, it actually supports what I'm saying, that the later rabbis knew that's exactly what Eve was up to. 
building a fence around the Torah. And this particular rabbi takes umbrage with the height of the fence, but nevertheless admits that she is indeed building a fence. So the point is, is that that's evidence for, for the fact that ancient Jewish people would have understood Eve in this way, building a fence around the Torah. And for our purposes, insofar as Jeremiah does it, and Nehemiah does it, and Jesus does it, and even the later rabbis do it, it seems to me that we can't disparage Eve for this move. I mean, it's a good move. It's just that the end doesn't pan out the way that we would want it to pan out. Just one more quick thing, by the way. So in in church, if if we're told by a Sunday school teacher or a pastor, oh, Adam didn't teach her properly or something. Okay, so let's take a deep breath here. Notice what I just did in the last seven minutes is I mentioned data on a page, right? That is, I went to text to support other text, okay? The notion that you'd float out the idea that Adam must not have taught her correctly, or let's make something else up. She had some sort of mental disability, okay? That's equally absurd. Why are those two things absurd? Because the text doesn't say it. So Christians love to do this, and Jews do too. So I'm not just ragging on on Christian tradition here. Pastors love to punt. They love to say, okay, we don't know certain information, so let's just make something up that sounds good. All right? So that really bothers me because as Deuteronomy says, and you know this, Cindy, very well, thou shall not add or subtract to the text, okay? Paul reiterates this in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, by the way. Don't do that. The only data we have is the data on the page. So let's, let's be mature and let's read that data for our information and not make things up in order to explain away certain things that we've got no idea about. Ah, uh, he did it. He brought up Paul and Corinthians, something that needs to be addressed because Paul says something to the effect of, I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds might somehow be led astray. Later in 1 Timothy, he starts an argument saying, for Adam was formed first and then Eve. We can't ignore these verses, and we get into these a little bit more next week as we talk about the women in the New Testament. Right now, I want to talk more about how the Hebrew Bible talks about women. I am a firm believer that we all, male and female, need to spend more time listening to their voices because when we don't, we forget that they are there and we forget the significant roles they played in Israelite society. I have to bring up a couple of my favorites. Can we talk about Deborah and (laughs) Yael maybe also because she's also brilliant and they're, they're put together and... Judges 4 and Judges 5, because they're kind of the narrative version and the poetic version. Can That's we just right. start with Deborah's name? Because <laughs> you do this yeah. in your class, and I loved it. Yeah, definitely. So Deborah, in at the beginning of Judges chapter 4, it says, you know, there was a judge named Deborah, or in Hebrew, Devoah, and she's the Eshet Lapidot in Hebrew. And most English translations translate that as Eshet Lapidot, the wife of Lapidot. A couple of different problems with that. Never is attested elsewhere in scripture as a man's name. And so that's kind of weird. I mean, Isha, Eshet there, does mean either woman or wife. So it, it could mean the wife of Lapidot. But an equally plausible translation of Eshet Lapidot would be woman of flames. Because a Lapid in Hebrew is a flame. 
So Aishat Lapidot would be woman of flames. This actually uh, describes her a lot better because she's a fiery military individual. She has a kind of a, a general, military general named Barak. And Barak says, she goes, you know, Barak, go in there and, and fight against the Canaanites. And, and Barak says, not without you, Deborah. Okay, so that is, and Deborah goes, fine, I'll go with you, but, you know, you're not going to get the glory for this. You know, a woman's going to win the day here then, right? Okay, so what's interesting here is that Barak means lightning. What happens when lightning touches the, the earth? It scorches it and creates flames. So from a contextual perspective, it makes a lot more sense that lightning and flames would go into battle together rather than just this wife of Lapidote, okay? Can I interrupt? Because there's sure. something incredibly beautiful geographically mm -hmm. about, about this, is that entire battle scene happens in what we now call the Jezreel Valley, which is mm -hmm. a flat valley with one stream, the Kishon, that runs through it. And Sisera and all of his chariots, like Sisera has the upper hand because he's in chariots yeah. on this flat plain. Mm -hmm. And the Israelites are, they're stuck, they're on foot. Like they don't, they can't fight chariots. It's crazy. <laughs> now, the right. thing is, because the Jezreel is so flat with the Kishon running through it, if it rains even a little bit, the rain soaks into the soil and becomes muddy. And so we get in Judges chapter five, the more poetic version of the story, how mm. the heavens fight on behalf of the Israelites. And wow. so we get the rain, the storm, right? Talk about lightning coming. Yes. And suddenly Sisera's chariots are stuck in the mud. And what used to be strength is now their weakness in that story. Mm. And so it's fun to pair that with Barak and with Deborah. That Love is it. so cool. That's yeah. beautiful. That's so wonderful. Definitely. So that that's fantastic. And, you know, insofar as this valley, right, has just the one stream flowing through it, that, you know, it, it denotes dryness, as it were, right? But and if lightning strikes a forest that's dry, you get flames, you know? So, right, contextually, Cindy, as you note, geographically, historically, um, all of this stuff points actually to, to Deborah's fieriness. And we sort of like, you know, subsume her under her husband. Oh, the text must be talking about her husband, Lapidote. Well, again, that's not a name in the Hebrew scriptures <laughs> elsewhere. And yeah. why not woman of flames? It works much better. Indeed, Deborah's the like the best judge in Israel's history. Read through the book of Judges. Deborah is, they spend, you know, Gideon probably has a little bit more page time, but Deborah's close. Samson, of course. But Samson, so Deborah, Deborah judges the land with equity and military might. And it says she does this for 40 years. For 40 years, the land has rest. Well, 40 in Hebrew is the symbolic number for judgment or correct judgment. For example, it's, it's 40 days and 40 nights that the judgment waters of the flood come down when, when God sends the flood. Or Moses is on top of Mount Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights because Moses is receiving God's righteous judgment in the Torah. Jesus is tested in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. The Israelites wander through the wilderness for 40 years. And God says at the beginning of Deuteronomy, as you know, Cindy, I'm doing this in order to test you to see if your heart is with me. So that is judgment, God judging the people. And so if, if you're a judge and you judge for 40 years with peace and military might, it means you're the best judge. That, that's the number that you want. Just to show some contrast, Samson, who's got all sorts of problems, 
is a Nazarite who doesn't take his Nazarite vow very seriously, eating honey out of a lion corpse, for example, running around with, with non-Israelite women, for example, being generally pretty selfish, he only reigns for 20 years. It's exactly half as good as Deborah. So it shows this kind of downward trajectory that we get with later judges. Deborah is literally the be- towards the beginning of the text, and she's the pinnacle. Now, there are other ju- there's one more judge before her in Judges chapter 3, verse 9, called Othniel, and he reigns for 40 years too. So that's great. It's just that he gets like three sentences, and then they move on. Deborah, all sorts of stuff is spent on her, all sorts of text. So it's very, very clear that Judges is exalting her as the judge paradigm to be emulated by every other, by the way, male judge, right? So this kind of goes back to that whole Barisho nothing. I mean, I don't know how the Israelite authors could have been clearer about the fact that women can judge and teach. It says that Deborah sits under the palm of Deborah and the whole people of Israel, both men and women, come to her to adjudicate. What's adjudication? What does a judge do? Teaching things. That's a woman teaching everyone in the whole country. So Deborah is a great example of very high praise for women in Israel's scriptures. One more quick thing. You mentioned Yael. Yael in English, it's like Jael with a J, but there's no J sound in Hebrew. So Yael, you mentioned the general, Canaanite general Sisera. He essentially retreats in battle ends up at Yael's tent. He thinks everything's going to be kosher because there's a peace treaty between Yael's husband and himself. And so uh, he, he goes there thinking he's going to find safety. And Yael says to him, come in, my Lord, come here to me. Really, the, the text is, the Hebrew text is so much more beautiful than that. So his name's Sisera, right? And she says to him, sur elai, elai, al which means Literally, turn, my sir, turn to me. Don't be afraid. So she sort of like lulls him in there, okay? And what happens? He says, I'm thirsty. Can you give me something to drink? I want some water. She doesn't give him water. She gives him milk. And then she tucks him into bed with a blanket. So what has she done to this big bad Canaanite general? She's infantilized him. She's made him into a baby, into an infant. And so, you know, it gets really funny when... Sisera says, okay, I'm going to take a nap here, but if anybody comes to the door of this tent and asks, is there a man in here? Is there an ish, a man? Tell them no. Well, we readers know that there isn't anymore. There's a baby in there, but there's no man, okay? I love that. I've never actually read it that way, but now that you say that, that is so funny. That is so true. (laughs) Oh, it's hysterical. It's really hilarious, and it really highlights her ability to take this, this big bad guy down many pegs and make him into a baby. And so he falls asleep and she grabs a tent peg and drives it through his temple, okay? And, and thereby saves Israel. Now what's really cool about this is we've got Deborah on the front lines of the military move and then ultimately Yael kills Sisera. Well, Devorah in Hebrew, Deborah, means bee, like a honeybee. And Yael means goat. And remember, she gives him milk. milk goats produce milk. So what's Judges telling us? That the bee and the goat combine to save the land flowing with milk and honey. This is symbolic stuff, and it, and it just completely highlights the, the amazingness of these two women. They save Israel, and they actually uphold God's many promises to the people, covenantal promises that promise a promised land flowing with milk and honey. And that's what the reader is remembering. 
that is so beautiful and an interesting way to read the text. Next week, we venture into the Gospels and those troublesome verses Paul gives us about women in leadership. Be sure to like or subscribe to this podcast so you do not miss out on the conversation. If you want to enroll in Dr. Shazer's class, Women and Gender in the Bible, use the link in the episode notes and you can get this course and many others with only one small monthly subscription. Thank you, Jeremy McDonald with Mason Jar Music for mixing, editing, and crafting all the good sounds you hear. And thank you for being curious about the world of the Bible. Thank you.